Hello and welcome to the Bare Naked Chat podcast, hosted by myself, Natalia Comis. And me, Ash Moon. This podcast is about what it is to be a woman in the world that we live in today. Womanhood and everything that comes with that, from periods, sex, body image, to gender pay gap, or simply being the underrepresented 50%. We're here to normalise subjects that don't often get spoken about. Women being women, talking for those of us who associate with the fabulous female gender. Please be aware that this episode may trigger some of our listeners and may not be appropriate to listen to around children or anyone who has been affected by topics such as sexual abuse, rape and childhood trauma. Hannah Shoham stevens is a writer, campaigner and photographer based in the UK. Her prime interest is advocating for survivors of abuse and encouraging people to embrace their sexuality as a form of healing. She also campaigns for acceptance of visible difference, awareness of chronic illness, and advocates for improved sex education. So welcome, Hannah. How are you today? I'm really good, thank you. How are you? Good. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's so nice to have you here with us. It's lovely to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Hannah. So I'm a journalist, writer, campaigner, kind of dabble in bits of everything, really. Um, I worked as a features journalist for a few years before I recently uh, went freelance. And I now do kind of press for charities and freelance write. um, And also now means I can focus more on campaigning for charities that I work with, like Changing Faces. What are you you currently working on at the moment, campaign-wise? Is there any projects? So I'm working on a couple of things right now. Um, a campaign called I Am A Sexual Survivor, which is hoping to encourage more people to embrace their sexuality as a form of healing after sexual assault, either as a child or as an adult. What led you to be a campaigner, Hannah? Like, why do you feel so strongly about helping people embrace their sexuality specifically? I think, uh, especially just my experiences as a child, I experienced uh, childhood sexual abuse between the ages of seven and nine, um, and it changed the course of my entire life. And I think having experienced something like that so young, it's always given me this drive to want to help other people and just make the world a less horrible place. <laughs> because yeah. it can be pretty nasty sometimes. And I think having experienced the nastiness of the world so young, I want to kind of help stop that from other people having to experience that. Um, yeah, and hopefully making the place, the world a better place, <laughs> one tiny bit yeah. of at a time. Yeah, well, I think quite a big bit at a time. You've been doing so much work. <laughs> I feel like every time I look through our notes about the kind of things I want to talk to you about, there's just so much treasure there to delve into. <laughs> so much. There's a lot of things in my life. <laughs> Brilliant. You've mentioned before reclaiming your sexuality as a form of healing for you. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that, like the beginnings of it or like in what way you first began to do this? Yeah, so I think I didn't realise how important sexuality was for so long because I hadn't hadn't truly realised how much the abuse had impacted my sexuality. Um, and the most, most basic way to explain that was I just had no concept of what consent was for most of my life until I was about 19, 20. Um, Mm. And it wasn't, and not only that, but my sexuality was very much keyed into being subservient to another person and subservient to another person's needs. So reclaiming that really started with self-pleasure and then grew to kind of learning how to experience pleasure with another person 
and also learning how to connect sexual pleasure with emotion because yeah. that was something that had been completely separated for me as a child um, and then going forward into adulthood. So there was many, there were many layers to it, but I think the key, the key kind of components were very much uh, engaging in self-pleasure and learning to enjoy my body for myself, but then also learning how to do that with another person and having a rewarding emotional experience of that. Yeah, that's amazing. Did you have shame when you first started experimenting with self-pleasure? Like I feel like for me, it took quite a long time to be able to start doing that without like these layers of shame on top because it was such an uncomfortable and strange thing to be doing. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes from two places that, I mean, as women in particular, we're already shamed for enjoying sex um, because for some reason there seems to be a lot of people out there who think women aren't meant to enjoy sex despite having a clitoris. I don't really understand the logic behind that one. Um, But then also on top of that, being a survivor of abuse, you're already ashamed of the abuse itself. And then there is also this very much this victimhood kind of view that says victims should not enjoy sex after they've been assaulted that you know that their sexuality is suddenly mute and it's not there anymore so I think I really really struggled with allowing myself to enjoy sex because it just felt wrong and it felt like this was something dirty that I shouldn't enjoy because it had been made wrong from such a young age that coming into that as an adult and trying to claim that as an adult was incredibly difficult to kind of let that shame go and just enjoy sex for what it was and which can be a really beautiful pleasurable and emotional experience yeah gosh yes Mm. definitely and it's just so much so much in what you just said you know the fact that women feel shamed if they are Mm -hmm. wanting to have pleasure with sex and there was a video that was going viral actually recently I don't know if you saw it with a, a woman who was teaching you basically how to actually be pleasured as a woman with this kind of little like puppet vagina thing <laughs> which sounds amazing and um and she was talking about the clitoris and how uh, basically penetration is just completely pointless for women and that you know we need you know a good 20 minutes of stimulation prior and that like our our orgasm is purely coming from the clitoris um, or, you know, our G spot, which is basically the clitoris. Um, And, and that men just, men and women just don't realize this information. Like Mm -hmm. there's still so much, so many uh, falsehoods around what an orgasm is for women. Um, And I, (laughs) I actually showed the video to my boyfriend, bless him. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, look at this, this is amazing. And uh, we were talking about it. And I was like, so basically, this is exactly what we need to be doing more of, like much more clitoris action. And um, and then he was like, this needs to be in schools. Like all schools uh-huh. need to have this like... And it's not... Vagi- you know, pretend vagina <laughs> so that they can play with it. <laughs> and, um, Free vaginas so, for everyone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And he was like, "Yeah, all, all like women need this." Um, and I was like, "All men and women need this. Like mm-hmm. boys and girls, you know, in sex ed classes need this information, so that it isn't all about the freaking penis." Because I don't know about mm-hmm. you guys, but uh, you know, sex ed for me is kind of comprised of putting a condom on a banana and talking about sexually transmitted diseases. Yep. And that was basically it. Um, yep. And not getting pregnant, obviously. 
Yeah. Um. <laughs> I remember mine like um I yeah. was so shocked because looking back on it now I didn't realize how bad it was but at the time we were taught what male masturbation was but we weren't taught what female masturbation was yes exactly. and that says everything you need to know about the state yeah. of our sex education system right now yeah it's only recently that people have been like actually women wank too like there's that mm-hmm. hashtag isn't there but I remember that same thing I remember my dad trying to have like one of those uncomfortable conversations with me and I was like <laughs> women don't women don't wank like what are you talking about <laughs> They do. They actually do. My dad's a wonderful <laughs> feminist father, luckily, but I was like, that's disgusting. Don't tell me these things. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because growing up in Greece as a child, like you didn't really talk about these things. Um, mm. But sex is actually a really, it, it's, it's open. It's not something that you feel like you need to hide. Like, in fact, in Greece, and I, I, this kind of does make me feel a bit uncomfortable, but at the same time, yeah, I don't know how I feel about it, really. But um, they they have a lot of porn in Greece, like tons of porn. <laughs> that is weird. But it does seem like sex isn't really, it's not frowned upon, let's say, in, in Greece. And even, mm. you know, um, sexuality in its many forms is accepted. So pleasure is seen as something that's okay, yet there is no sex education. Um, there, there is there is no you know talking about well maybe you should think about going on the pill if you want to have sex like mm. that kind of just doesn't really exist but in the UK it's it's almost the opposite there's no um, openness about sex as something to do for pleasure but it's more something to be scared of because you might get pregnant or you might get an STI yeah. Yeah. Um, especially for women of course yeah and I think especially for women, sex is sold to us as something that's done to us, not something we're an active participant in. I mean, it's it's what you see in film and media. It's what you see in porn. Like, sex is always portrayed as something that is for the male, like, sex organs. It, like, and it's all about penetration. And mm. it, it doesn't. And also, our image of sex is that sex only happens until the male orgasms. And that's not, that should not be our measurement of what a sexual act is. Because sex is sex is everything. Sex is you know masturbation, blowjobs, playing, foreplay, like even even just talking can be sexual. But we've somehow narrowed it down to this very specific view that it's penis in vagina, and it's all about procreation and male pleasure. Yeah, and it's all about that final end point rather than enjoying mm-hmm. the whole act, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it's it's been one of the most liberating things for me, especially. it's something I I got to learn with my current partner is that sex is not defined by that by the male climax and actually being able to learn how to enjoy sex where that's not centered has been like really transformative for me and I wish everyone could enjoy sex that way yeah Yeah, that's amazing it sounds like your partner has had quite a amazing um, effect and part of your journey but he yeah yeah he's been a really kind of key part in helping me embrace my sexuality and kind of reduce the shame that I still had around the things that I liked um and also just he's so consistent and supportive in terms of he's always willing to have a conversation he's always willing to kind of re-examine something if we need to um and also he's just really good at sex you know that helps too (laughs) (laughs) he sounds like a dream boat <laughs> Let's give him a little shout out. Dream yeah. out. <laughs> oh, he'll love that. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, has your partner played any like really key specific roles like from the beginning? Were you already practicing your own like reclaiming of your body before you met him? Yeah, I mean, definitely, it's been a process for the last kind of ten years, really. So it's definitely been around, and me and him have been together for about five years now. Um, I think he, some of the most kind of key roles he played for me were just treating me with respect. <laughs> like, and I know that sounds really basic, but I think as a result of the abuse, I'd kind of allowed myself to be in relationships where I wasn't treated with equal respect or put on equal footing to my partner. Yeah. And he was the first partner I've ever had who genuinely treated me with absolute like respect and patience in the outset and there was never any kind of assumptions put on me um and then I think just kind of he really helped me be more comfortable in my own skin purely because he was comfortable with me and my skin if that makes sense yeah around someone who you know is completely at ease with themselves and then is also at ease with you just put me in such a better place because I felt like I was on an equal footing with him and I could share my insecurities or even my kind of things that I was most confident about. I didn't, there was no shame in our relationship. And we've always worked from the very beginning to have very open communication when it comes to sex, because it's something that's really important to both of us. So I think having that kind of constant channel of communication has been really helpful for me. That is amazing. And you saying that the respect, like the basic level of respect Mm. sounds like a, Sounds like a basic thing, but that's like the most important, isn't it? That's also the biggest thing in everything like that. It's just yeah. so nice. You have to be able to respect and trust each other because otherwise what is there? But I think unfortunately, especially for women or non-binary folks, I think there is a tendency for us to be the kind of subservient one in the relationship or we put our needs before our partner especially if you're in kind of straight or straight appearing relationships where women have always been the subservient partner and they kind of move for their partner's needs it's harder for us I think to understand what a, like a normal relationship what is as it were because because we're taught that we put our needs like below someone else's so actually a basic level of respect and like trust seems like revolutionary to us when really it shouldn't be yeah what was like the um what was your first journey into embracing your sexuality like what what kind of was that shift for you Hannah I think it's hard to kind of pinpoint it down to one thing but I Mm. think one of the most significant occasions probably happened when I was about, I think it was about 19, um, and I had a one-night stand. And I had had one-night stands before, and I'd kind of tried to use them as a way to engage my sexuality without shame. And, mm. hadn't, and, and I think up until that point, I didn't really realise what I'd actually been doing, which is going into what I, as a when I was still trying to understand what the abuse was, was when I, as a preteen, I nicknamed prostitute mode. Uh, which is basically I go into a mode of complete autopilot and it's survival mode and quite often I've had several occasions where that has led me into sexual situations I didn't really want to be in but was unable to express myself and uh, kind of create a safe space or you know embrace my bodily autonomy because I put someone else's needs before mine always in that regard Mm -hmm. and I had this occasion when I was 19 and afterwards I hadn't self-harmed in probably about four or five years and this person left and I like proceeded to 
go into a complete spiral and really badly hurt myself. And it became the last time I ever self-harmed and it became the last time that I ever went that badly into autopilot because I just, it forced me to completely re-examine what I was doing to myself and how I was punishing myself for something that had been done to me. Mm. And I think it was, it, it became the first step as well in acknowledging just how much the abuse had impacted my sexuality because I think I had convinced myself that it wasn't really that big of a deal, that it hadn't affected me that much. And I think finally accepting that, yes, it has drastically affected my life actually helped me start to move forward. Yeah, like you kind of had to really reach down into the depths and the bottom of it, didn't you, to yeah. then be able to reach up and realise how it Yeah, I think it was, sometimes you need to hit rock bottom. And I think yeah. that was my rock bottom, I think. I had to feel the worst I've ever felt in order to start building on that. And, and also wanting to stop feeling that way was so important because I had never, you know, I'd never let myself feel bad about this stuff, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So like I had to allow myself to be sad and be angry and let all of those emotions come up and, and then actually work my way through them because I just numbed them for so long. I think rock bottom is quite a necessary place sometimes, isn't it? A really good friend of mine who I used to live with, I had a phase of having really awful panic attacks when I went to bed. And so she would often have to like put me to bed. (laughs) And she used to tell me this story about Granny Rockbottom, who was an old woman who lived down in the depths and the deep roots of the earth. And like, but like where compost is the richest, and it's like it's a bit scary to go down there, but she will nourish you once you're down at rock bottom and then help you climb back up to the light. And it helped me so much. Yeah. I know. Isn't it delicious? Granny rock bottom with spiders in her hair, but with a loving glint in her eyes. I love it. Everyone should have that story. That needs to be turned into a book. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? Yeah, I think about it all the time. I like that. What kind of help did you receive? When you, you know, when you hit rock bottom or before that, did you have help before that, um, like any type of therapy? And if so, you know, was it effective or what was the most effective uh, thing that helped you? So I think I initially tried to have counselling when I was about 14, 15, after my parents' quite traumatic divorce. Mm. And, but I just wasn't in a position that I could talk and also I think that the type of counselling was wrong for what I was trying to deal with. Um, I was doing cognitive behavioural therapy, which if anyone who's done CBT knows, basically means you talk your problems to death. And that can be useful for some things, but for abuse, it's very difficult because even to this day, I can't talk specifics about what I experienced because it's not helpful for me. So I actually didn't really get any help, proper help until I was about 17 when my partner at the time I told him about the abuse and I was experiencing kind of almost nightly night terrors where I would wake up like hysterically crying. And in our, in our sexual relationship, I was just completely unable to connect physical feeling with emotion because that's how my sexuality had been developed. And uh, he actually got me therapy through a family friend of his, um, which is called Penny Parks Inner Child Therapy, which is a therapy she actually created herself to treat her own experiences of child sexual abuse because she had horrific experiences. Um, And it's now a world-renowned therapy. 
and it's all basically it's used to uh, give space to child abuse survivors to kind of get therapy without having to talk about specifics um and it really helped me in terms of allowing myself to enjoy sex without shame and enjoy sex with and connect that with pleasure but then also to it detoxified my memories of the abuse so that I wasn't getting as severe flashbacks and my nightmares kind of reduced a little bit um so that was definitely kind of the most effective therapy but it wasn't you know it wasn't a wasn't a simple answer and it's something that I still have to work on a lot and kind of reinforce all the time Mm, yeah interesting and when when we spoke last you were mentioning that you were interested in doing more around that training is that is that still the case yeah I really want to um because I actually reconnected with my counsellor uh earlier this year just to ask her advice about my new campaign about survivor sexuality um and I've always considered going going back to school and kind of being retrained as a counsellor at some point because it's something I'm really passionate about and I would really, really love to go back and specialise in this type of counselling and then provide it to people who don't have the resources necessarily to pay for the therapy. Because while mm. the therapy is amazing, it's very expensive. <laughs> and yeah. the only reason I was able to access it is because it was a family friend and I got a huge discount. And even then it was, you know, I'm lucky enough that I had parents who were willing and able to split that cost. Um, whereas a lot of people who have experiences of this don't have any funds for therapy and are either waiting for six sessions on the NHS or just not doing anything about it. So I would really like to go back to school and then be able to provide this therapy for people for basically what they can afford. Yeah, and make it accessible. Yeah, and you know, ideally it'd be great to make it accessible so that people can do workshops at home and they have you know, different materials that they can use in their day-to-day life. Because I just, in general, I just don't feel like there is enough material and resources for people who've been through stuff like this, whether it's childhood sexual abuse or adult sexual assault. There just isn't enough resources to help people in their day-to-day lives and dealing with the aftermath of that. Yeah, and there's so much, I mean, it's a shame all over again, isn't it? Like people just don't Mm -hmm. want to talk about it. They don't want to admit to having gone through it or to have not gone through it because that then means you don't understand, which is another thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so much shame circled around it and it just, it makes it so hard to even talk about, like even coming out and talking publicly about experiencing abuse was so difficult for me to actually acknowledge that, especially childhood sexual abuse, because it's just not spoken about. People don't want to address something that's uncomfortable in their eyes. Mm. So even when the Me Too movement happened, like I found it amazing in so many ways and I found it really helpful because obviously I'd experienced sexual assault as an adult but I just felt like it, there wasn't any room for me um, to talk about those childhood experiences. And I think, like you say, it's just, it comes from that shame that we have built up around it. Mm. I mean, I'm super inspired by you, by that you're actually are voicing all of this. Um, I'm, I'm interested to know when this kind of process started for you in that you were able to publicly start talking about it and and what that looked like because I know you have a blog as well Mm -hmm. so and do you think your kind of your journalistic background has helped with being able to put words to to this you know the abuse and everything that's been going on for you and, and bring it kind of full circle in that you're running campaigns now for this what 
you know how did that start yeah I think oh it's hard to hard to pinpoint exactly where (laughs) but I think it's always been because writing's always been very central for my life like I've always written obsessively since I was a little kid um and it's always been a form of healing for me and Mm. I think I was, you know, I was talking about it loads with friends and family. I'd gotten to the point where I was very open about it with friends um, and my partner. And I had started to be able to kind of shed that shame in my personal life. And I think I then started to look outwards and realised, wait a minute, no one else is experiencing that because it's still just not talked about. And I realised, mm. it was like, well, unless there are more people deliberately trying to get a public platform for this and deliberately pushing we're not going to make any change because at the moment the way the media treats any case of child sexual abuse is just by screaming pedo at people which is not helpful or you've got feature stories in magazines where it's just people giving the 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 grossest details of the abuse that they've experienced and that's not gross on them that's gross on the person obviously enacting those things but I just I was looking around me and just seeing nothing but awful representations of what abuse is and obviously abuse is awful but I just I wasn't seeing anything that gave an actual representation of how it affects a person's life like we'll talk for days about you know how awful pedophiles are and how we should lock them up or people think we should castrate them which I personally think is the dumbest thing in the world or we we all we you know we have these gross sordid stories about them but we don't talk about prevention we don't talk about what happens to a person afterwards and I realized I was like well that's why it took me so long to start healing and actually work on myself because I didn't know that I could be not okay and I didn't know that it was okay that my sexuality was affected I didn't know that you know all of the PTSD that I had I didn't even know I had PTSD until last year because my therapist didn't talk to me about it so it's like there were so many layers to it and I just finally got to the point where I was just I was so fed up with it all I was like I have to just start speaking about this because otherwise I'm gonna go crazy yeah um and I just thought well if if not me then who so why not me exactly (laughs) amazing yeah yeah that is amazing do you feel like you had to look at your PTSD separately or has it all been like a healing thing together? I know you said you just realized you had PTSD quite recently. Mm. So has that been like a separate process to look at that? Yeah. I mean, that's been a whole nother ball game <laughs> in the last year. Cause I, I have always exhibited symptoms of PTSD. Um, but in all through the years I've, you know, been diagnosed with depression and anxiety, but I have never had a therapist out and out tell me I have PTSD until the end of last year where I had kind of reached breaking point again and I decided to go counselling um, and that's a key thing I think about counselling is that you have to be in a place where you want help and that you're ready for help mm, yeah and after a long time I wasn't um, and it was through that that I got to the end of my first session with with her and she just turned around to me and went has no one ever told you that you very clearly have PTSD and I was I was blown away and I completely denied it at first I had no interest in accepting that as a diagnosis um and and because in my eyes what I'd experienced wasn't bad enough to have PTSD and it wasn't until I kind of was able to go away and really examine that that I was able to accept that absolutely I have PTSD um and that's okay and it's been a journey in terms of because especially because my PTSD 
isn't entirely linked to the childhood sexual assault. I have PTSD stuff that's kind of linked to a rape I experienced at 21. I have some PTSD things related to some traumatic health experiences I've had um, as a teenager. So there's, there's various layers to it. So it's, de- it's definitely something that I'm dealing in relation mm. to my abuse with, but it's, it, there's, it's more layered than that. Yeah. So there's, there's lots of things I'm dealing with as a result of that. Yeah, it's a long... Um, someone, someone else I was chatting to recently about PTSD was describing it as like a long yellow brick road, which you have to kind mm-hmm. of like just acknowledge each little brick as you walk along with love and grace. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. Because there's so many aspects of it there's so many feelings and kind of bad habits that come up with it like I for for me the things I've always struggled with most are kind of disassociation extreme emotional detachment and then flashbacks and then also things like obsessive uh safety checks um so I used to from a from a very young age I couldn't sleep unless I checked the front door like three times to make sure it was locked yeah and things like that um and so I still have to work, I have to work on that every single day and acknowledge it every single day that that's something that could happen. Because especially with disassociation and emotional detachment, because that was my default from such a young age, I sometimes don't realise I'm doing it. So I have to be very careful about examining my own emotions every single day. And yeah, and like of them. noticing your own habits. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's interesting what you said about not thinking that what you experienced was bad enough for you to have PTSD. Um, And I think, I mean, personally, I know actually quite a few people who have suffered from PTSD and I myself have as well. Mm. And it's super interesting when you think, you know, you kind of associate PTSD with something with like soldiers coming back from war have that kind of thing rather than something that might have happened to you you know and however small or big that might be and I think it's it's just interesting how society sees and associates certain things and then how you Mm. process that yourself um because actually all of the things that you've described are pretty horrendous things to have gone through and no wonder you had PTSD you know like but in your mind that obviously wasn't a big enough thing and we do tend to minimize what has happened to us probably for us to be able to to deal with it yeah Um, I think it's a survival yeah definitely yeah so yeah it's interesting that we that we do that and that we think well you know it's almost like our problems aren't good enough to have these these things happen (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah I think it's very much because we live in a society that is very much codified pain Mm. where there are levels of what is pain and what is bad pain what's good pain what's you know and it's you know we live in a country where people regularly say stuff like finish your dinner because there are people starving in Africa things like that where we we are constantly codifying pain and deciding what is bad enough and what isn't which means that and unfortunately a lot of the time female pain or pain of intersex or non-binary people is pretty much at the bottom of that scale it's seen you know you guys have put up have put up with so much crap already you should just be able to deal with this (laughs) So I think as a result of that, a lot of people who experience sexual assault or sexual trauma end up feeling that their trauma is not bad enough to warrant PTSD as a diagnosis. And especially because, you know, most of the time our only media portrayals of PTSD 
are of soldiers. Mm. Like the only the only one of uh, PTSD that I can think of for sexual assault in the last ten years was Jessica Jones, the Marvel TV series. Yeah, and that was the, the, one of the most accurate depictions of PTSD I've ever seen. But even then, that was criticised for saying, "Oh, well, she wouldn't have PTSD from something like that." And I'm like, well, yes, yes, she would. <laughs> yeah, you can have it from like a multitude of things, depending yeah. on your own self and on the situation. Yeah. Like you can have it from like I know people who have it from medical trauma. I know mm. people who, you know, been in violent okay, like violent events, and they have PTSD because of that or sexual trauma. There are so many different reasons that you can have PTSD, but it's because we live in a world where we've like the society has decided whether your pain is bad enough or not before you've even experienced that pain. Someone's yeah. decided whether it's bad enough or not. If you were going to be giving advice to any other women out there or any women that maybe come into your own life who are going through reclaiming their bodies, what three things would you like to say to someone going through that? I think number one, please don't feel guilty because guilt is a incredibly destructive emotion. And I think women in particular are, (laughs) I don't want to say are guilty of this, but um, often almost identify with guilt and allow our lives to be controlled by it so if you are feeling anything like that I ask people to open up because that's that's the first thing you've got to do is that if you you have to be able to talk about it with someone else and it doesn't matter whether it's someone you know doesn't matter whether it's a stranger on the internet if there's someone that you feel comfortable just opening up with that's the first step and it's the first step in just acknowledging that you have been through something, that your pain is valid and that you, you are valid and worthy of treatment and of healing. Um, I think the second would be, for, especially in terms of surviving sexual assault, don't forget that your sexuality is powerful. And even if someone else has tried to take that away from you, it's still yours no matter what a person does to you, your sexuality still belongs to you. It doesn't belong to anyone else and it can't be taken away. It can be impacted, it can be hurt, but it can never be actually taken away by someone. Um, And I think the number one, the kind of piece of advice I'd give for people to start that, that process of healing, I think is finding pleasure within yourself. And that doesn't need to be sexual pleasure. It doesn't need to be simple, as simple as physical pleasure. But to find enjoyment again and to find happiness again after something like that, I think you have to learn what it is that really makes you happy. And that can be, you know, day-to-day life or, or sexual, sexually, sexually. And I think it's really important that you come back to yourself because so much of yourself gets taken away in abuse. I think it's, it takes a long process to, to kind of bring yourself back to who you are. And I think the only way to do that is to spend time with yourself. Um, and that's, you know, that doesn't need, mean just sitting in a room alone by yourself or anything. <laughs> but, um, have fun. Like that's, that's what I found is just, I just allowed myself to have fun and only do the things that made me happy and only do the things that interested me. And then that slowly allowed me to then translate that sexually. So I started with kind of self-pleasure and learning what made me tick because for so long, my sexuality had been defined by what made other people have fun. Mm. So it's about, I think it's, it's really hard to kind of quantify and to just 
three things because there's there's a book's <laughs> worth of stuff I'd love to say to people. There literally is. I'm waiting <laughs> yeah. for your book. Yeah. I'll be there in queue. Yes. <laughs> At least I'll have two people buying it. <laughs> and all of our listeners. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love that. And I think that those three pieces of advice are, you know, super key and you said it beautifully at the moment what is currently giving you joy and, and inspiration you know what is making you happy right now oh a couple of things <laughs> I think number one I'm um, finally working for who I want to work for um I had to give up my job at the start of this year because of some health issues um because I have a multitude of chronic illnesses that kind of reached peak at the beginning of this year and going freelance was the single most terrifying thing I think I've ever done in my life (laughs) but it's been the most rewarding thing in the world like just being able to do what I want to do work for the people that I want to work for who I trust and respect has been the most rewarding experience and then just enjoying myself and like I've trying to learn to stop feeling guilty for having fun for things that I want to do and not just doing what other people want to do all the time and again, I think I'm, I still have to, I'm still learning and checking in every day as well with my sexuality and embracing that every single day and making sure that I'm in tune with my sexuality as much as I possibly can be, because it's not something that, you know, I didn't, I didn't just wake up one day and my sexuality was great and I'm not going to wake up every day and my sexuality will be great. It just, it doesn't work that way. Like I still have bad days now. I still have things that I struggle with now. Um, so what? brings me joy is kind of learning how to embrace that every single day and allowing myself to keep learning because I'm a firm believer that we never stop learning we never stop growing there's always something new so that's how I try and live my life really is it's like start each day with what am I going to learn today and what am I going to reinforce today oh that's so affirming to listen and to hear another person say that <laughs> I'm glad. yeah um do you consider yourself a feminist, Hannah? 100%. <laughs> yeah. I think there's been such a stigma around that word, especially in recent years, where like people want to assign this kind of man-hating view of it, or you know, we just there's so much stigma attached to something so simple, which is infuriating. So it's just mm. just basic equality, people. <laughs> um, and I just, I think, especially growing up in a, I'm from a very matriarchal family. Um, so I think growing up around really powerhouse women has been really influential for me. And I was also lucky enough to be raised by parents who never even for a second made any of us feel like our gender had anything to do with what we could achieve in life. Um, but I also think I was, from a young age, was made aware of how that was not the case for everyone else. I still remember watching like comic relief documentaries as a kid talking about child marriage and talking about uh, making like uh, providing education for girls in other countries and being completely astounded that that was even necessary. Mm. And I think, so from a young age, I've, I've just, I've always, it sounds really cheesy, but I've always just had a really like strong passion for justice. And if I see injustice, I just, it makes my blood boil. <laughs> So I'm not someone who can sit by and keep my mouth shut. (laughs) So for me, feminism is about that. It's not keeping our mouth shut and it's not shutting up just because we're women. Yes. (laughs) Taking that fight to other people and making sure that they listen whether they want to or not. Yes. (laughs) Amen. Hey, woman. 
Um, is there anything that you're excited about at the moment that's coming up that you're working on or projects or even just like yeah anything really well um by the time this comes out i will have launched uh, my i am a sexual survivor campaign so i'm really excited about that but also terrified because i've been putting it off for a while because <laughs> because it feels even more personal than opening up about the abuse mm. um but then also I'm, I've, I'm a champion for this charity changing faces at the moment so i'm really excited about some of the opportunities that are going to come through that um i'm looking at training as a sex educator at the end of this year so i'm really excited about to do that so i can actually start kind of getting into schools and talking to kids about these things and hopefully giving them more of an overview of sex yes Take, taking your vaginas with you. The most, the most, I'm ex- oh, actually, oh, um, I'm also working on an exhibition with my sister. Ooh. We started this little uh, Instagram called Chronic Sisters because both of us have quite severe chronic illnesses. And it started basically just us writing letters to each other just to kind of comfort each other, basically. Um, and she's a she's an illustrator and I do photography and she did this amazing series that was depicting the various symptoms of her chronic illness um, she has chronic migraines um, and I had started a similar project doing self-portraits uh, depicting various symptoms of my conditions so we've decided to try and launch an exhibition later this year kind of end of summer that's going to bring those two projects together um, under the title Chronic Sisters, and then we're going to fundraise for the respective charities that help our conditions out. That Amazing. is then awesome on every level. I love that so much. Yeah, really excited because you know this is the first time we've gotten to do like a proper artistic project together. Yeah. Um, especially because as teenagers, you know, we're at each other's throats too much. I think <laughs> to do that. <laughs> yeah. We're really close now, so it's going to be really nice to kind of do that together which i'm really excited about oh that's awesome yeah i, I told that. you i like to have lots of projects on the go i mean yeah. you're talking to the right people here we're exactly <laughs> the same so <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah i like to be busy i like too many different things so there's always a new project there's always something else i want to do and something else i want to try there's just so much awesome stuff to do in this world is what i feel exactly. like <laughs> why, why waste any time yeah exactly or why just only focus on one thing yeah and I think it's especially because I spend have to spend so much time being ill mm. I think it makes me like so desperate to to do stuff when I am feeling okay that I just I'm always like what's the next project what else can I do to fill my time and yeah. make my life more exciting but also I think the thing with you especially Hannah is all the things that you are working on are passion projects aren't they they're mm. things that you're genuinely really passionate about which makes yeah. it easier in many respects. Um, Definitely. Because if, uh, if it's something that's personal to you, it inspires you to do it. Yeah. Yes. So <laughs> um, one question that we ask all of our guests is what women in your life have inspired you or lifted you up? Oh, there's quite a few, but I'd have to say my number one is my mum. And I'll... Oh, I always get emotional when I talk about my mum. Oh, I love that. (laughs) My mum is my absolute hero. Like, she is the strongest person I know. And I know she'll be listening to this when it comes out. So, hi, mum. And she is just amazing. Like, she never stops fighting. She's And she's like me. She's always got a new project. She's so artistic and creative. And she's just always, by setting that example... She's always shown me that there is literally nothing I can do if I, if I want to set my mind to it. Um, 
and she's always just really fostered that creativity in all of her kids because I'm one of three and all of us like she's made sure that you know we all can engage in that creative side of ourselves and that there's just made us believe that the sky really is the limit um and then I think number two I'd have to say my, my one of my best friends Frankie who is the person who a introduced me to body uh, body positivity and body acceptance and basically forced me to stop thinking I was ugly <laughs> yeah. um and she was also really key in kind of learning to embrace my sexuality in a positive way where like she helped me realize that there is no shame in enjoying sex and there's no shame in like not having in having sex outside of a committed relationship yeah i think they're the first two that come to mind yay mum and frankie yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh well thank you hannah this has been an amazing conversation and enlightening actually and hopefully inspiring as well for our listeners i hope so would you like to just do a little shout out and broadcast of where people can find you and like maybe the dates of your exhibition coming up with your sister and stuff like that yep so i can be found the best place to find me is on instagram all my links are on there and my instagram is my full name hannah shewan stevens shewan is spelled s-h-e-w-a-n i know it's a weird middle name um (laughs) and my website is on there which is just www.hannahshewanstevens.com um my exhibition with my sister should be launching at the end of august but we haven't got a specific date yet um but please do visit and you'll find us at uh, chronic sisters on instagram um yeah and i'll be launching well by the time this goes live i am sexual survivor will be live so if you are a survivor of sexual assault i do encourage you to come visit and if you feel comfortable share your story um and yeah i'll be here there and everywhere i'm sure (laughs) wonderful thank you and we'll have to um come and see your show um which i'm assuming is in london uh we have i think we're gonna do the first one in cambridge because that's where my sister lives um and then i think we're gonna try and do a second one in london afterwards so we're gonna have to wait and see because we've got it's all up in the air we're still trying to figure out budgeting (laughs) and everything um yeah there should be lots of lots of cool things coming up this year so come and check me out and i'll be around (laughs) and also also i always say i my dms are and my emails are always open to people because i know how isolating it can be to live with something like this so please if this is something you're struggling with and you you don't have anyone to talk to i am always my ears are always open yeah amazing yeah all right well thank you so much hannah and um all of the links to hannah's stuff will also be on um the podcast page so do feel free to go and have a look there as well and thank you to our lovely listeners if this is something that you are struggling with in any way like hannah says please do go and connect with her we will also have some links where you can go and find support as well on the podcast site all right. Awesome. Great. Yeah. Whoop, whoop. Yay. Yay. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for me. It's been awesome. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Bare Naked Chats podcast. We love every single one of you. We will be back in a fortnight with our next installment of healthy oversharing, juicy chats and educational convos. 
You can rate, review and subscribe to Bare Naked Chats on iTunes and please do, we will love you forever. This helps boost our rating and spread our love even further. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Bare Naked Chats and you can email us at barenakedchats at gmail.com with any comments, thoughts or topics of interest you want us to delve into. Catch you later, cats. Adios.